0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all very much for being here this afternoon for this uh, meeting of the Estaminae, the Great War uh, Study Group, uh, which is carried out in conjunction with the Canberra branch of the Western Front Association and of course the National Library who give us free access here to their their great theatre uh, in return for bums on seats really, people through the front door. Um, my name is Aaron Pegram. Uh, I'm a historian at the Australian War Memorial, and I'm also a, a member of what Peter Stanley refers to as the organising Soviet of the Estamine Great War uh, Study Group. And uh, Peter gives his apologies. He can't make it here, and neither can Roger Lee or Chris Roberts for that, that, that matter. You're stuck with the Red Devil, Dr. Andrew Richards, Richardson, who is our, our ticket lady at the front, um, and myself, who I'm, I'll be chairing. The talk this evening on what is the 100th anniversary of the Australian Light Horse's gallant charge at Beersheba in Palestine. Uh, it's occupied the news, uh, in case you you hadn't noticed, uh, and it's been quite interesting to to see how Beersheba has been represented in the in the press, uh, and in particular the way in which it's remembered in Australia. 100 years ago, uh, it's been revered over the last few days as the first. Australian victory in the First World War, the turning point in the First World War, and the last great last charge, last great charge um, involving Australian troops. Well, um, and it's, so it's it's actually been quite interesting to see uh, the history on one on one respects uh, of the Australian the involvement in the Sinai and Palestine campaign, and then also the the national myth and legend that's sort of galloped off into the into the sunset, no doubt. Um, so it's been a quite an interesting time um, and um, there's been, uh, yeah, quite, quite a few news articles and you'll see it on the news tonight, uh, but I wouldn't be doing the Australian War Memorial any justice if I wasn't spruiking War, Wartime magazine and one of the most sensible articles you'll read about the Australian contribution to the fighting in Sinai, Palestine by Dr Jean Bou of the uh, Strategic Studies Centre at the Australian National University who has an article in this magazine, which we'll be giving away, uh, amongst other things, as part of our Lucky Door Prize. So it'll be fair to say that when we tend to think of the fighting in Sinai and Palestine during the First World War, we often think of uh, the charge at Beersheba. That's why we're, you know, it's the centenary here today. Uh, A lot of ink has been spilt, recounting that gallant action by Australian forces um, but it would be fair to say that that overlooks many of the other aspects of the British Empire's contribution to the fighting in Sinai and Palestine against the Ottoman Turks. And part of that includes the human dimension of the fighting in that theatre. And, uh, and that's why we have Jenny Horsfield here uh, this evening to tell us something about that human dimension of the fighting in the Middle East. And in particular, the story of Rania McPhilmy, who... It was one of uh, a number of patriotic Australian women who saw it their, their patriotic duty to assist the Australian war effort by, uh, by any means possible. And uh, I'll be able to introduce uh, Jenny and, and her talk in just a few moments time. But uh, before we get underway, I mean, Peter normally kicks things off with what he calls parish news. Uh, this is an opportunity for members of the audience who are engaged in studies of the Great War to, to give us an update on any books there may be uh, that may have just completed or currently at press. Uh, some of you may have travelled to uh, the battlefields, whether they be on Gallipoli, Western Fronts, so on no, Palestine. Uh, is there any updates from our parish? No? Oh, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll jump right in. A um, few things. I recently submitted a PhD. Uh, at the Australian National University on uh, the Australians who were taken prisoner by the Germans on the Western Front during the First World War. Uh, those of you who uh, came a couple of months ago would have heard me talk about the guys who were captured at Bulacore on the 11th of April 1917. So rest assured that works in and um, what I've been assumed has been a relatively smooth process for the examination um, is taking a fair bit of time. <laughs> um Part of my duties at the Australian War Memorial is that I, I lead battlefield tours, commercial battlefield tours to the fighting on the or to the Western Front, and I've just returned from uh, the Third Battle of Ypres battlefields for the centenary of Polygon Wood. Uh, I had 35 people, all interested and very much engaged in the fighting around Ypres. Uh, 12-day tour that involves canvassing the Western Front battlefields. Exceptionally, uh, really exhausting, uh, but certainly well worthwhile. Um, also, just, just submitted a book on the Australians and the Victoria Cross. Need Liz to say, well, do we need another book on the Victoria Cross? Well, yes. It's an updated and expanded version of Lionel Wigmore's book, They Dead Mightily, which originally was published in 1963 by the Australian War Memorial. Um, I think that's about it. If there's no further news from anybody here within the audience, no? Okay, well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Jenny Horsfield, who is a Canberra based historian, researcher, and teacher. And uh, she has uh, written a number of books on uh, relating to uh, relating to the area around the district here in Canberra, including this book here, Rainbow, the Story of Ronnie McPhillamy, which was published by Gininderra Press in 2007. Okay. So as I mentioned, Jen, Jenny is going to tell us a little bit more about the human dimension of the fighting in the Sinai-Palestine campaign that... that uh, Uh, is much more than, of course, the fighting at Beersheba. So, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Jenny to the microphone.
1: Good evening. Is that clear enough to all? The Desert Campaign of 1916-1918 is a quintessentially Australian story. Um, Restart, um, restart your your computer to finish installing important updates.
0: No, let's let's go. Let's go, remind me in four hours. Okay. There we go. We're all good. uh, All right, I should, I should. We're in business.
1: Okay. Most of the men who rushed to enlist in the Light Horse in 1914 and 15 were countrymen at ease on horseback since boyhood. Together with their compatriots in the New Zealand Mounted Rifle Brigade, they formed an energetic and enterprising mounted force, which quickly gained a reputation for its dash, hardiness and initiative. The darker side of this volunteer army made itself felt in a deep-seated racism and contempt for the local people, which found expression at times in outbursts of violence against the Bedouins and Egyptians. The Anzac troops stationed in Egypt and Palestine were young, generally single, well-paid, and freed from the restraints of home, family, and community. It is no surprise that they gained a notorious reputation for drunken, often riotous behaviour in the brothels and marketplaces of Cairo and Port Said, and that their rate of what was called venereal disease was much higher than for British troops. A young Australian woman who was serving as a nursing aide with the Voluntary Aid Detachment, VAD, had a special interest in the men of the Light Horse. Rania McPhilamy had come to Egypt in late 1915 to offer her services as a VAD in a Cairo hospital. And it is her story I'm going to share with you. Rainier is given a passing mention, in some of the histories of the desert campaign, yet her real story is only discovered in the letters of the men who loved her, the men of the light horse. Colonel Cecil Granville, who was commanding officer of the 1st Light Horse Regiment in 1916, wrote about Rainier and her older friend, Alice Chisholm. There were not two more loved and respected women in the whole of Egypt. Rainier McPhillamy was born in 1889. She was the daughter of a wealthy squatter and was assured of a life of privilege and comfort. Her father, Charles McPhillamy, was known as the Squire of Waroo. Waroo was the name of his sheep station on the banks of the Lachlan River near Forbes. Stretching for 100,000 acres and providing enormous wealth for its owner during the years of the wool boom in the 1890s, and or the 1880s. Charles married Alice Halloran, the woman. <coughs> that one. That's her sister, that's Alice. The, daughter, the beautiful pampered daughter of Henry Halloran, the Sydney poet and friend of Henry Parks. Charles and Alice McPhillamy were at the top of the local social hierarchy, their names always heading the list at the Forbes Hospital Ball and the Picnic Race Ball, and their eldest daughter Rainia accompanied them to these events once she had come of age, and her beauty and elegance were often remarked upon. Her role in life was clear, as the eldest girl in a family of six children, she would assist her mother with running a large domestic establishment and accompany her parents to social occasions until she herself married a prosperous squatter. The Great War changed the course of her life as it did for so many other Australians. But even before the war, it was clear that Rainier was determined to look beyond the narrow boundaries which defined and limited what she was capable of. With the reluctant support of her parents, she persuaded her family that she should be sent away to school in 1905 at the age of 16. The school of choice was Ascombe in Sydney's eastern suburbs. I have a modern photo but that that was one of the original buildings, which attracted the patronage of leading families throughout New South Wales, and still does, of course. Under the enlightened principal Herbert J. Carter, the girls studied science, mathematics and natural history and were encouraged to take part in regular outdoor activities, such as swimming and bushwalks, as well as the liberal arts like drama and music. Rainier blossomed in this environment in her senior year the school suggested that rainier should be encouraged to stay on for matriculation and perhaps pursue a university education but charles McPhillamy's response was predictable his daughter was not going to become a blue stocking a girl with a private education had no need with a private income had no need of an education So at the end of the summer term in 1907, when she was 18, Rainier packed her bags and returned to Wauru. A friendship which Rainier developed at Ascombe was to have a profound effect on her life. Ronnie MacDonald was a country boy from Mudgee. He met Rainier when his team from Shaw Grammar School played cricket with Ascombe. And the friendship developed after they left school, and they met up again in Sydney at the time of the Royal Easter show in April 1914. In August 1914, the week that Ward was declared, Rainier invited Ronnie to come to Waru for a week's visit to meet her parents. For many young couples, the war was the catalyst for the making of promises. Ronnie left Forbes early, four days into the week's stay, worried about missing out in the recruitment process, but he carried with him on the train back to Sydney a commitment from Rainier that sustained him in the coming months. Ronnie joined other young men from the western districts of New South Wales who were flocking to Sydney to enlist in the Light Horse. He passed the riding test and was sworn in as a trooper in the 1st Light Horse Regiment. They embarked on the Star of Victoria in October 1914. Ronnie wrote every week to Rainier, first from the crowded troop ship sailing towards Aden, then from their desert encampment outside Cairo. He called her Rainbow. Darling Rainbow, the letters all began. In one letter, he enclosed some rose petals he had gathered from the gardens surrounding ancient tombs outside the city. In Forbes, Rainier waited for news and letters. She was 25 years old, and if she dreamed of a future life with Ronnie, it remained a very private matter. There had been no official engagement notice, though Ronnie had confided to his mother his desire to marry her. Like thousands of her countrywomen, she spent the long anxious days in determined activity, helping the Red Cross with fundraising. For Rainier, this took the form of a massive jam-making exercise using the abundant stone fruits that ripened in midsummer in the Waru Orchard. The marathon was impressive enough to rate a paragraph in the Daily Telegraph. 30 cases of jam were dispatched from Forbes railway station to Sydney in February 1915. Ronnie spent the early months of 1915 on training duties and patrols along the Nile. He wrote to Rainier of the clear nights, the native boats on the river glowing white in the moonlight. But much of that summer he spent with his regiment on Gallipoli in cramped, fly-infested dugouts on the peninsula, Exposed for five wearying months to sniper fire and disease. Rainier's photograph never left his breast pocket. He wrote very little about himself, but he was concerned at a decision Rainier, Rainbow, had made. I'm sorry to hear that you are thinking of training as a nurse. I would hate to think of you dressing some of the wounds, one sees. Rainier was in fact planning to join the voluntary arm of the nursing service known as the Voluntary Aid Detachment, VAD. This organisation was actually an arm of the Red Cross and consisted of volunteers who'd been trained to assist in hospitals and convalescent homes uh, at home in Australia. VAs learned home nursing, first aid, home hygiene and invalid cookery, then attended a series of lectures and did practical work culminating in examinations and award of certificates. There was also a one-month training course at a number of Sydney hospitals and a two-week training course at the Casualty Ward of Sydney Hospital. Much of what the VAs did in hospitals was of a menial nature, equivalent to the work of a hospital orderly emptying bedpans, making beds, cleaning up rooms and preparing light refreshments. But generally the work was done cheerfully and willingly as the women saw it as a direct way to help the country's war effort. Their own service freed up other hospital personnel to enlist and work overseas. Rainier was drawn to the scheme by a variety of motives. The training would give her a welcome degree of independence from home and allow for a more active involvement in the war effort. And of course, Rainier must have hoped that sooner or later her work would allow her to go to Egypt. She qualified as a VAD in September 1915. The doctor who supplied the medical certificate discerned both her determination and her vulnerability. He commented, Miss McPhillamy does not look strong, but she has any amount of pluck. She has a good constitution and is good at all sports. She has been present at a number of operations. He recommended her for service overseas and wished her well in her work for the war effort. By late November 1915, Rainier was in Cairo, working as a nursing aide at No. 2 Australian General Hospital. In quiet times at the hospital, she helped out at the YMCA hostel in the city. Many men noticed the dark-eyed girl from Forbes and wrote home about her small kindnesses to them, a box of sweets for an invalid, a book to accompany a man on his lonely journey home on extended sick leave. Her first patient in hospital had worked on the big stations along the Lachlan during the drought of the 90s, hand-feeding sheep. The evacuation of the Gallipoli Peninsula in December 1915 saw Ronnie and two of his friends in the 1st Light Horse Regiment form part of the rear guard left behind to hold the line while thousands of their countrymen slipped out to sea under cover of darkness. As the troop ships bore the Anzacs back to Alexandria, the Australian public learned in amazement of the miracle of the withdrawal, which had been achieved with no serious casualties under the very nose of the unsuspecting Turks. Ronnie's reunion with Rainier in Cairo must have been an emotional one. But there was little time to enjoy each other's company. Re-equipped as mounted troops, the men began long days of patrol work in the region of the Nile and further east into Sinai, where it was clear the Turks were planning an offensive. By May, the regiments were heading towards the Turkish outpost of Romani. The heat was intense, and the men were stretched to their limits by the conditions. On one patrol, the men were in the saddle for 48 hours, with only four hours sleep, their water rationed to one bottle per day. A series of battles on the 3rd and 4th of August saw the taking of Romani, and proved to be a turning point in the desert campaign. Thereafter, the Turks were on the defensive and began to withdraw with heavy losses east across the desert. On the 8th of August, Lieutenant MacDonald and two other men were acting as scouts as the regiments advanced towards the oasis of Bir el-Abd. That morning, Ronnie wrote a hasty note to Rainier, explaining that he had reluctantly torn up all her letters knowing he would be away and in action for an indefinite period. He promised to write again when he had the chance. He was killed that day, shot in the head by a Turkish sniper. Rainier was in Cairo when news of Ronnie's death reached her. She gave herself little time to grieve. The appalling heat and dust of summer had settled on the capital and Rainier went automatically about the arrangements that followed such a death. Cables, home, letters, the sorting of precious gifts or possessions that had been Ronnie's, some of which she sent back to Ronnie's mother in Mudgee. Her parents sent a cable pleading that she come home as soon as she could get a passage. But Rainia knew that work would be her only means of coping and she decided to stay on in Egypt and help the men of the regiments who she had come to know and respect. Within a few weeks of Ronnie's death, she escaped from Cairo, which was now burdened by so many memories and unfulfilled promises. She went further east to Port Said, where a new rest camp for troopers had been set up and a canteen run by volunteers established nearby. Here she joined an older woman, Mrs Alice Chisholm, who had set up a canteen housed in an old malting shed on the beach near the Suez Canal. Thousands of troops converged on Port Said after the Battle of Romani, and they found Mrs Chisholm's canteen a welcome place to visit. An official rest camp for the Anzac Mounted Division had been established in Port Said in July 1916, but it was a dusty, unattractive site near the railway station. Men preferred the attractions of the native quarter and often breaking reg- regulations took a native cab into the quarter to sample its dubious pleasures. The military authorities were uneasy at the prospect of a large body of men on leave wandering the native quarters. It summoned the spectre of riots and drunken disturbance that had given the Anzac such a poor reputation in Cairo. Consequently, uh, Major General Harry Chevelle, commanding the Anzac Mounted Division, encouraged Alice Chisholm to set up a canteen on the beach. And this is where Rainier joined her. The two women did their best to create a homely environment. Ruffled curtains shaded the window spaces. A small vase of flowers adorned each dining table, even though the floor was just hard-packed sand. There were steaming cups of tea and fresh sandwiches, cheap tobacco, sweets and writing materials, and the welcoming presence of kindly Australian women. You can see there are other volunteers behind the counter. These factors ensured the canteen's success with the men. In fact, it was such a great success that many men preferred to recuperate in Port Said rather than take leave in Cairo. Alice Chisholm was also keen to establish a presence at Cantara further down the Suez Canal I'll show you Cantara Oh dear that hasn't come out very well has it well there's port said Cantara that's the railway line through there and the border it's Gaza up there so Cantara. Um, In the uh, presence at Kantara, further down the Suez Canal, by the middle of 1916 this railway junction had become the hub of military activity for the desert campaign. All the troops heading east or going back to Cairo on leave crossed the Suez Canal at Kantara. They bivouacked near the railway line, supping on tins of Billy Beef and waiting the train arrivals and the order to move. There was obviously a need for some kind of halfway house for the troops. In December 1916, a New Zealander, Etty Rout, received permission to open a canteen at Cantara, but recurrent attacks of malaria and dysentery forced her to give up, and in late December, she transferred the club and all its stock to Alice Chisholm for 400 pound. Leaving Alice's daughter, Dorothy, in charge of the Port Said canteen, Rainier joined Alice at Cantara. In January 1917, the two women opened the new Empire Soldiers Club. In fact, the club consisted of nothing more than two marquees pitched between a swamp and the railway line, but they refused to let the dreary surrounds daunt them. In the main marquee, they boiled up hundreds of eggs in kerosene tins and brewed endless cups of tea for grateful troops. British, as well as Anzacs. With the help of some local Egyptian boys, they erected a small wooden hut where Rainier and Alice slept under the most basic conditions with no insect screens or protection from the dust of the notorious Kamsin, the desert wind. The wind was nearly the undoing of the project. Early in 1917, Alice succumbed to a bad attack of bronchitis and took to her bed in her hut Rainier battled on until the winds blew down the main marquee, soon after a British infantry division had passed through. Help came with the visit of a friend of Alice, Major Michael Brooksner. He was stationed a few miles from Kantara at Moaska, where ANZAC reinforcements arrived for training and hospital convalescents recuperated. Brooksner commanded the 2nd Light Horse Brigade Training Regiment and he was able to use his influence and arrange for... Each of the regiments to supply NCOs and men prepared to go and help at Kantara. There was a ready response, and Major Brooksner took the men back to Kantara to re erect the tent. Many of these men stayed on as official assistants to Alice and Rainier. They were B class men, recently discharged from hospital but not yet fit for active service at the front. Between January 1917 and January 1918, when the greatest movement of troops was taking place through Kantara, the new Empire Soldiers Club was never closed, either day or night. And by that stage, of course, it had been well extended into a number of uh, large buildings. The men worked in three shifts, eight men at a time with two men doing clerical work, and every day 40 Arabs were marched in from the native compound to do general cleaning work. Alice and Rainier looked after the catering while the sergeants did the books and ordering. The marquee was inadequate for the large numbers and Alice obtained permission from the authorities to erect a large permanent structure which became the main canteen. It was a wooden frame covered in cane matting. Soldiers could buy smokes, tinned food, sweets and writing materials over the counter and be served a substantial meal seated at tables. The men were awed by Mrs. Chisholm and Rainier's ability to track down large quantities of meat and fresh vegetables and serve appetising meals in this desolate outpost. Frozen meat was under full military control and it was the continuing friendship and support of Michael Brooksner that gave the women access to these supplies. Fresh vegetables and fruit were brought down from Port Said or Cairo, where Rainier had established a large network of reliable suppliers. Not only the YMCA and AIF canteens, but also a host of Levantine merchants gave her good service. At one stage, Rainier cornered the market in tinned tongue, which was served with fresh salad, much to the men's relish, and ice cream was on the menu for a while in a small back room And I saw a photograph of this. In a small back room, one of the staff, dressed in shirt sleeves and shorts for the hot work, peddled a fixed bicycle, ingeniously connected to a drum-like contraption for churning ice and cream and fruit into real ice cream. Ice chests, bread bins, cake baskets, steaming cauldrons for tea and coffee, all the apparatus of a busy and efficient canteen were gradually acquired with the profits coming from the business. The officers, whose mess was in separate quarters, were served the same fare as the men, but had to pay more for it. At one stage, the two women fed 80 visiting British officers at a very short notice. After an excellent meal, they continued their journey, wondering why the army, with its vast resources, could not feed them as well as these two ladies could. Another photo of... Rainier and Alice, with some of their men. In May 1917, an officer of the 6th Light Horse Regiment, Harold Ryrie, wrote to Rainier from Palestine, where the Anzac Mounted Division was enduring its second summer in the desert. Where you are is the only bright spot in one's journey to and from here. Coming this way, one feels that on saying goodbye to you, he is cutting himself off again for a long time from the nicest thing on earth, a nice woman's society. Awfully hot out here in the middle of the day and flies and dust beggar description. There were many men like Harold Ryrie who passing through Cantara, treasured their memories of this restful interlude in the midst of a harrowing and tedious campaign. Two men of the 8th Light Horse Regiment left a note for Rainier when they visited the canteen to the dear little dark girl. We were very disappointed at not seeing you here today when we were going through again to the front. We met you at Port Said. But we would like you to write to these addresses. Au revoir. Rainier showed an intuitive sympathy for the hungry, dispirited or exhausted men who arrived on her doorstep, many of them not yet out of boyhood, and gave them quiet help in times of trouble. Knowing how much a week's leave in Cairo went to the heads of some of the men and quickly emptied their pockets, she arranged with the Anzac hostel in the city to pay for accommodation for any boys stranded there. A letter from the hostel enclosing receipts (coughs) arrived for her in Kantara. They're all, with the exception of two, our own boys. The others are two sailors who were too full at four o'clock in the morning to return to their boat. They sobered up later, but were sorry sights. Being penniless, I saw them through the night. Among the many visitors who arrived for a meal and conversation was Banjo Patterson, who was in charge of the remount depot near Cairo, where all the horses were trained. Patterson stayed with the remount unit for the rest of the war and kept diaries, which later became the basis of his memoir- memoirs. Another visitor to Cantara was Major T.E. Lawrence, who was ferrying British arms and gold to the Hejaz people of Southern Arabia and their leader, Prince Faisal, in preparation for their planned uprising against the Turks. Lawrence had not yet become the newsworthy and romantic figure which the post-war world made of him. To Rainier's eyes, he was just a small and unremarkable British officer en route to the eastern theatre of war. The men who left a greater impression on her imagination were some of the Arab dignitaries themselves. Nasib al-Bakri was a sophisticated Arab townsman, a member of a leading Damascus mercantile family. His passion was the creation of an independent Arab state after the war, once the shackles of Ottoman rule had been overthrown. Still got a bit to go. In riding with Lawrence on his raids, he would talk of Damascus after the war and his dreams of splendid modern hospitals and libraries of foreign books in the city. He was one of the founders of the Damascus Protocol, a document specifying the frontiers of such an independent Arab state. Nasib presented Rainier with a gift, some Bedouin robes and headdresses, which are still in the family's possession. The canteen played host at least once in 1917 to a group of Arab dignitaries. Perplexed as to what to serve these gentlemen and knowing their preference for shared dishes, Rainier and Alice decided to set out plates of sweet jam, pieces of bread and small cups of sweet tea. The group were very satisfied with this spread and declared their visit was a great pleasure. Many visitors to the canteen at Kantara remarked on the toll which the climate and strenuous work were taking on the two women. At one stage, Rainia had been working solidly for three days without changing her clothes and unable to snatch any but brief rests. Scribbled notes such as these arrived at the canteen from the authorities. There will be a troop train in at 1am, another one at 4am. And for each new set of arrivals, there would be hot food and a place to rest before the next stage of their journey. The work was unrelenting. Again, it hasn't come out very well, I'm sorry, but October the 31st that year saw the great mounted charge of light horsemen across the open plain at Beersheba, a small town in southern Palestine. It's not on this map. And the capture of its vital wells, without which the expeditionary campaign could not have survived. Then on 7th November, the the ancient biblical town of Gaza was taken. You can all see Gaza down there. Gaza was taken by British troops, and the way lay open for the Allies to advance up the Philistine plain and capture Jerusalem by Christmas. The new Commander-in-Chief of the Desert Campaign, Viscount Edmund Allenby, determined that the Anzacs should spend the summer holding on to the Jordan Valley. lay to the east of Jerusalem down the precipitous mountain tracks that led to the Dead Sea the lowest spot on earth in the ferocious summers even the local people abandoned their villages and moved up into the hills to escape the dust the stifling humidity and the swarms of mosquitoes and scorpions that invaded the region it was clear to Rainier and Alice that a new club was urgently needed in Jerusalem to provide rest and recuperation for the men on leave from the Jordan Valley Rainier put her request for a new campaign to uh, a new canteen to General Allenby himself when he visited Kantara. Evidently, he was charmed and impressed by this determined young woman and agreed to a request to be allowed to set up a club in the occupied city. Rainier made a number of trips to Jerusalem from Kantara using a special military rail pass. The new club was to be acquired and fitted out with an advance of 2,000 pound, part of the profits from Cantara. And by the end of June, Rainier had found a suitable place, a substantial two-storied stone dwelling, which had belonged to a wealthy German before the war. From its flat roof and heavily shuttered windows, one could look down over the cypress clad hills and weathered stone buildings of the old city. Behind it lay an expanse of waste ground an ideal site for the building of a new canteen and a large kitchen, storage sheds and incinerators. Another point in its favour was its proximity to the Anzac Divisional Rest Camp, to which men came on leave from the valley. The new Empire Soldiers Club became Rainier's home for the next six months. By the end of June, 32 crates of supplies had been sent to Jerusalem via the military railway staff were coming from Kantara where a number of the B-class soldiers were keen to join her staff and Rainier recruited local Arab women for the kitchen and domestic work. She scoured the city for materials for the club including fine furniture from the German colony, bookshelves housed a small library and she also obtained a piano which was transported to Jerusalem from Port Said. The piano which had been owned by the Australian Comforts Fund was quite old but had been repaired. Sheet music was acquired from second-hand shops in Cairo and before long, visitors at the club were relaxing in the sitting room to the quiet strains of a piano which some of the men enjoyed playing. Along with some selections of sheet music, Rainy was sent another gift on the AIF truck, a bit of a dog, about four months old, a pretty bad dog with a penchant for silk stockings. I had a photo but it was too faint to show you. She preferred nursing the dog. Both canteen and recreation rooms at Jerusalem were open from early morning till late at night. As the house was conveniently close to the railway station, refreshments were taken to the station whenever word was received that a hospital train was passing through. And this thoughtful practice, which was also followed at Kantara, was one more way in which the Empire Soldiers' Clubs won the respect and gratitude of the troops. Many letters to Rainier testify to the life-affirming and civilising influence of the Jerusalem club on people worn down and demoralised by four years of war. One of her B-class helpers wrote after the war, any of the boys I have seen from the various regiments are never tired of talking of your club, our club, and unanimously... Unanimously agree, it was easily the best institution ever started in either Egypt or Palestine. What about a page to go? Is that okay? (coughs) That's another photo of Rainier with the uh, the staff. Many of the men who passed through Kantara looked forward to seeing Rainier on duty. She was a strikingly beautiful woman, but as well seems to have been possessed of a warm and sympathetic nature. A number of officers, both British and Australian, proposed marriage to her without success. At that stage of the war, she was still struggling with the grief and depression following Ronnie's death. A large number of letters in her family's possession give us an insight into the feelings of some of these men who wrote more freely to this young woman than to their own family. To them, the victory at Beersheba, was just one more stage on the long and weary road that the war had become. Many of the men of the Light Horse had been on active service since late 1914 with no chance of leave to Australia and a grim expectation in late 1917 that the war would last for several more years. While casualties were not as heavy as on the Western Front, nevertheless the men were exposed to continuous, arduous and dangerous work in an exhausting desert climate. Very few of their letters have a triumphant note. They sound pensive, lonely, aware of life's fragility and impermanence. One soldier wrote expressing a devout wish that this ghastly war will soon be over and we'll be back with those who are dear to us and live normal and peaceful lives. Another, having lost two good friends to gunfire and disease, wrote in angry despair to Rainier, why should the best men be taken first? I'm completely disgusted with the whole thing. I've lost... My two best friends, they were as brothers to me, and I'm doing my best to try and get out of this unit to forget. 1918 saw the light horse enduring summer in the Jordan Valley, the lowest, hottest place on earth. And then in September came their swift mounted advance up through Syria to Damascus, and a triumphant conclusion to the campaign with the complete collapse of Ottoman rule. But by that stage, the Spanish influenza epidemic was spreading through the crowded cities of the Middle East, and many of the Australians succumbed to it. They died in makeshift hospitals in Syria and Palestine, with the bitter knowledge that after four years of warfare, they would never see their home again. Rainey herself succumbed to a bout of malaria during the last months of the war, but she stayed on after demobilization to set up a canteen at Rafa, on the Egyptian-Palestine border to accommodate the troops waiting to return to Australia. Rainier's first encounter with her future husband was at Kantara, where Lieutenant Colonel Clive Single, a medical officer with the first light horse ambulance, passed through on his way to Palestine and then to a period of arduous service in the Jordan Valley. She lent him a parcel of books and the attraction and deep admiration he felt for this young woman soon turned into love. In the Jordan Valley, Clive Single ran a field hospital and an operating tent to deal with casualties in sickness before patients were evacuated by sand cart to the nearest railhead. During the swift advance up through Samaria, Clive Single gained the award of DSO for his outstanding leadership of the ambulance team. The 10th Light Horse Regiment reached Damascus on the 1st of October but Clive missed the triumph and chaos of the early days of peace as he lay feverish with malaria in a hospital in Port Said. Alice Chisholm and Rainier travelled home to Australia in July 1919 on board the troop ship Morvada. Clive Single was also on board, returning home to resume life as a civilian doctor. By that stage she was determined to marry Rainier. But a difficult year was to pass before that as Clive tried to find a country practice he could afford and Rainier struggled with the legacy of her own war, what she called a a turmoil of grief and apathy. Many men returning from abroad also struggled to adjust and expressed their sense of loss and nostalgia in letters to Rainier. One trooper wrote, Life here I find lonely, and often long for the good old army days and all my old army friends. Another wrote, I frequently think of the happy times we all had at the Anzac Club. Another wrote, I- I'm still a bit nervy, but I suppose I'll get over that in time. I've been thinking quite a lot about the old club lately. Another, I often wish we were back in Palestine, but then I think of the valley and fairly shudder at the heat and dust and mosquitoes. And I then think of poor Batty and company who were there forever. Perhaps I can sometimes be excused for wishing I was there with them. Life is very purposeless for me. Rainier and Clive Single married in June 1920 and set out for their new life in the northwest township of Moree, where Clive became a popular and respected family doctor and where the couple were active in setting up a baby health center to help improve maternal and infant health. The first country district to have such a centre. In 1927, Clive bought a medical practice in Macquarie Street in Sydney and the family settled with four growing children into a large residence in the leafy and prosperous eastern suburbs. After Clive Single's untimely death ten years into the marriage, caused by a recurrence of his wartime malaria, Rania raised her four children on her own and remained strongly involved with their education and in community life. And I'll just finish with one paragraph. This is just a quote from my book. Rainier's achievements as a young woman in Egypt and Palestine was extraordinary. It was a time when convention dictated women's behaviour and to a, to a large extent, yet there was nothing conventional about the role which Rainier and Alice Chisholm created for themselves in the malarial heat and dust of Kantara. Whatever the mix of motives that led her to the desert campaign, her work there was remembered with gratitude by thousands of its soldiers. The men who had so many reasons to love and respect Rainier and have long since gone, most of them forgotten or minor figures in the desert campaign. Rainier played an integral part in their experience of the first AIF, which, in C.W. Bean's memorable words, marches still down the long lane of its country's history. So, there we go. Sure. <laughs> and by the way, can you, can you Sure.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yes, so, Jennifer, thank you very much for what has been a very engaging discussion um, about a very little-known aspect of Australia's First World War story, let alone the uh, Australia the campaign in the Sinai and Palestine. It would be very amiss of me not to plug Jenny's book, uh, Rainbow, the story of Ronnie McPhilmy, which can be purchased... Where? Where can at we get a copy? Shop. They're
1: keeping the bookshop
0: open. Here, at yeah, the National yeah, Library. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Don't buy one, buy three! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, we do have some time for, for questions and uh, Andrew is going to be a, a roving mic monkey. So if you, have, uh, if you have any questions, stick up your hand and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll let Andrew run to you. Are there any questions here for, for Jenny? I'm going to jump on in. Mm-hmm. Volunteer aid detachments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have to prefer, I have to say I don't really know too much about it. Mm-hmm. You could volunteer to become uh, part of the voluntary aid detachment yes. and in Rania's case, uh, I think you said that she escaped Cairo. Um, could you could you simply leave at your own device as well? I mean, uh, y- what
1: was, the, um, yes, what was so the mandatory... The voluntary aid detachments, which I'm sure a lot of you know also figured in the Second World War, um, were generally... Um, Middle class women, because they are the only ones who would have had the time and resources to devote um, to the war when other women were home minding the farm or bringing up their children while their their husband was off fighting. So they were generally middle class women who were, in a sense, free agents. Um, They paid their own way to um, the Middle East um, and they could take the initiative as to. Where they worked, they could help set up canteens. But really, they were—they were—it's not like they were enlisted and they uh, had to serve a term of duty. They were um, free agents in that sense. But of course, both Rainier and Alice were both working under the, um, in some senses, under the control or under the eye of um, the, the British, and needed um, permission to set up these canteens. But the authorities were only too glad to to. Support them because they saw the the positive uh, effect it had on the morale of the troops. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yep. Back there. Thank you. Uh, thanks for your presentation, Jennifer, and I think your last remarks are a segue into my question. To what extent were the canteens organised um, beyond the the inspired individuals? Was was there a canopy of of, of structure? Uh,
1: there, w- there were there um, were. There were Red Cross canteens that were organised by the bigger structure but the amazing thing about these two women was it was their initiative, you know, it really was their initiative and while they then were able to, um, to I mean they set it up as tents first, you know, but once, they, once the military authorities saw that men were happy to go there, then they were able to give the support, they were able to, you know, give them access to meat supplies, uh, to the B class, you know, for staff, they needed to get um military support for for all of that, but the amazing thing about Alice and is your friend arrived yet uh,
0: no she hasn't. oh
1: there's a young there's a woman who's doing some research on Alice Chisholm and she hasn't been able to come, which is a shame but um both Alice and uh, Rainier, really um it was their own initiative and that's uh I don't know whether these days in the you know the military seen that, that kind of thing as possible perhaps it's a lot more constrained but mm-hmm. certainly they, they were able to take a lot of initi- the initiative themselves
0: I, I know that uh, Alice Chisholm is, is, is made a dame as as a, as a result of her her work working yes. in Kantara and other places uh, does does Rania receive any sort of oh, she did, yes. awards uh, or yes. recognition for They her? were
1: both um, summoned to Sydney in 1920 just before Rainier married, to of course the Prince of Wales had arrived, June 1920, and that's when he was going to present military honours. And Alice Chisholm received the, the award of Dame, uh, which I think is Member of the British Empire, is it? Uh, whereas Rainier was slightly less; hers was Order of the British Empire. But her real worry was um, whether she is... a as an engaged woman should um, accept, if if the prince asked her to dance, I think that was probably not so much her, but her husband husband be was a bit concerned about that. But she she did go along and get yes. this award. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes.
0: If uh, if my wife was offered a dance by uh, by Prince Harry, I think, <laughs> You'd I'd, think, think I'd be twice yeah, about I I, yeah, yeah, I'd I wouldn't have a look in. <laughs> <Yeah>. But. Um, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in in thanking Jenny for what has been a very lively and engaging discussion. So, thank you very much. Now, Andrew, do you have? uh, We have one more formal order of business. Uh, You have to stay up here. You don't don't go away. Yes, you have got to draw the truck raffle. Okay, so everybody, get your tickets out. Your lucky door prize tickets. We're mixed up. Okay, a, we've all got mixed up. A few of
1: them, aren't okay, there? so
0: we have what we have up for grabs are, are several hot ticket items uh, up yeah. for grabs, mainly yeah. books, publications. So first off, we have uh, Gary Hutchison's *Pilgrimage: uh, Battlefield*, the traveller's guide to Australia's battlefield. Okay. Oh,
1: you give them a choice, yeah.
0: And then, oh no, 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 we're doing these in order. Oh right. And so we've got uh, Orange P9. Orange P9. Do we have a winner? Going once, twice,
1: Someone must have not
0: yet hand sold. Hand. All right, so we'll just draw another one. Right. So we've got another one P43. P43. Here we go, okay. There we go. Next on the, uh, the chuck raffle list, we've got uh, Michelle Bomford's excellent book on, uh, called Beaten Down by Blood, The Battle of mont saint Quentin and Peron, 1918, published by Big Sky Publishing through the Australian Army History Unit. Orange P-58. Orange P-58. Goodness, we've had an exodus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, Put all right.
0: Okay. P10. Yes, there we go. Okay. Uh, Next, we have... This is quite appropriate. We have... uh, the second volume of the centenary history of Australia and the Great War by Geoffrey Gray, the late Geoffrey Gray, esteemed historian and friend of many of our colleagues here over at the Asamenei, his book, the War, the, the War with the Ottoman Empire. And we have for this uh, very esteemed publication, P74. Aha, up the back there. Very good. Nice. we got one more And lucky last, a plug for the Australian War Memorial, the latest issue of wartime, including Jean-Boo's excellent article on, the, uh, on the, the, the myths associated with Beersheba and restoring it to its proper operation, operational context. We have Orange P-46. Orange P-46. Uh, huzzah! All right, there we go. Thank you so
1: much, Jenny. Thank oh. you for that. Yeah. I had a quick
0: question for you, Jenny, um, about and I didn't get a chance to ask the question. Yeah. That's
1: right, right. Bob. Yeah, got the yeah. up here. Well done, <laughs>
0: um, I, I had a question that I was going to ask uh, Jenny, but I'd, uh, we sort of moved straight into the book, um, the book giveaway. Um, the the clubs that, uh, that that were run there uh, by by Rania and mm. Co. They were basically social, well, become a social club, but also a place to get a cup of tea, a feed, some sort of mm. genteel conversation. What other services? Were offered at those clubs. Were there book readings? Was there any sort of pastoral care? Was there any counselling? Was there any any other formalised activities there?
1: That's very interesting. The, um, I don't think there were any book readings, but there were certainly at the Jerusalem Club. There were books. Um, you know, she scoured the bookshops for uh, for books. So there were book, um, like books. A library. Uh, there was a library there yes. that she established just on her own initiative. Counselling i don 't think was a word that would have been around in those days, but certainly you know i've read I read all the letters you know this this story came to me through through meeting her granddaughter and finding two suitcases of letters under a bed that had you know so letters from that many letters from soldiers who had been helped by her you know informally not not sitting down counseling them but helping them through their own grief, through their loneliness, their despair. Um, and it was a burden that Rainier carried home herself because she had quite a lot of her own burdens to carry back to Australia. But there's no doubt a lot. And that's why one of the reasons they valued and loved her because she was a listening ear and, and helped them in many... Uh, you know, there's millions of stories that I could tell you about that, but she, was, she helped them. Uh, but it was an informal it wasn't it wouldn't have been called a counseling thing but uh, no i don't think there are any programs as such i think just sitting with a cigarette at a table in you know somewhere quiet would have been for them as therapeutic as it got <laughs> in that war all right. Uh, yeah. Do you know we'll where the
0: next uh, next meeting is? I was going to ask you. No, I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't come that well prepared. But uh. yes, no, we uh, we will send out some notice of what's what's been uh, been planned for uh, the forthcoming months and also into twenty eighteen. Uh, during the week, uh the organising Soviet has has met and we've come up together uh, with uh, the proposed plan for twenty eighteen, which is yet to be yet to be sort of uh, confirmed. We'll let you all know in due course. But let me say that uh, 2018 looks to be as yeah. as engaging and productive as as the p- previous few years. So, uh, with that, we're we're bang on time. Oh, that's cool. I urge you all to go upstairs and buy uh, buy Jennifer's book uh, and uh, and and get her to sign it signed. Of course. Oh, yes, oh, yes, sure. yes, that would. I'm sure you should be pleased yeah. to do that. Uh, and once again, please join me in, in thanking Jennifer for. Thank